Alarm Nerds is brought to you by MS and Life Safety. Trying to grow your business but not sure where to start? Check out the show notes to learn about our services along with my contact information. Now let's get started. All right, we're here for another episode of Alarm Nerds. I am here with Scott Zuniga. If you have ever heard of Scott, it means you probably got in a fight with him on the internet because Scott's reputation precedes him. And I wanted to go over a topic today that I think is relevant for a lot of us, which is how do you stand out when you have competitors down the block who are offering some sort of a like product or service? What do you do to stand out amongst the competition? So Scott, thank you very much for being here today. And why don't we just jump right in? So let's do it. <laughs> so I'm going to start with. You know, recognizing that, you know, say I'm a smaller business, I'm, you know, maybe I'm a one person operation, maybe I'm just a mom and pop shop, or maybe I'm just, you know, maybe I have five or six employees and we just are, you know, a relatively small territory. You know, right. there are quite a few, there are quite a few lines out there that are not really that different from A to B. And say you're serving a residential market or small commercial. Right. The technology is technology. You know, they're not looking for anything high end. They're not looking for anything high security. So right. if you're just looking at bare bones, basic security system, maybe access control or cameras, mm -hmm. what do you do? How does, you know, how does John Q alarm dealer stand out amongst their competition? And, you know, what would you say as far as like, what is this problem? Uh, I would say the problem is the integrator is trying to differentiate themselves um, as struggling to differentiate themselves because the only thing that they think differentiates is, is product. But if you're selling the same product as everybody else, mm -hmm. you're never going to, and that's your only differentiator. You're always going to be the same as competition. That's a great and point. So, yeah, go ahead. I want to say that's a great point. If you're a smaller business and you're serving a a market that isn't necessarily looking for high-end products, right. it's not that hard to get access to that equipment. Sure. You know, the companies that have, uh, you know, minimum order quantities to become a dealer are a lot more lenient on, on the more consumer grade products. And right. you're going to find a lot of competition out there. Correct. It is tough. It is a little tough to get access to the higher enterprise end stuff. Um, so maybe when you're starting off, don't try to differentiate yourself solely by product. You have to recognize that what differentiates you is most likely something that comes from your own specific skill set and talents. So your job as the owner of your company is to differentiate the one thing or two things that your company does different that nobody else in your market does. And here's a hint, it's not the best customer service. <laughs> Uh, it's something else that you need to identify or an opportunity to be able to provide some sort of service that nobody else offers in your market and really, uh, pardon my Francais, market the hell out of it uh, so that everybody knows that you're the team that does that one thing and the customers that want that specific thing will gravitate to you. So for instance, in my market, when I had my own uh, residential integration company, we marketed ourselves as uh, the company that did high-end residential uh, commercial-grade security systems for the home. So 
anything that we did would be the same thing that we would put in a small to medium-sized business. The products, therefore, were deemed to be of a higher quality. Uh, the solution was going to be more of something that somebody who owned or had familiarity with uh, working with operating costs in a business was going to be familiar with cost-wise. So it wasn't such a stretch to them. And that's how we priced it. How That's how we marketed ourselves. And nobody else in our market, at least at that time, was doing the same thing. And it, and it really helped us get the kind of customer. We'd identified the buyer persona that we wanted and that buyer persona gravitated toward that type of service. I think you and I are on the same page that it's, it's a real pet peeve of mine when I talk to a small business and we say, you know, what, what do you do differently? And they say, like right. you said, you know, we provide the best service. We provide right. them, but you know, we, we really care about our customers. That's right. not a thing. That sounds great. No, it's a great, you know, it's great yeah. to put on your marketing, but what does that yeah. mean? Or does that mean there are companies out there who go to market and say, we don't care about our customers? <laughs> right. Your customer expects you to have the best customer service by default. That's why they chose you because they assume that that's already the case. Uh, and, and every, you're like you say, everybody says the same thing. So mm -hmm. if, if you didn't provide the best customer service and another thing that you probably don't, then your customer at some point is going to figure that out and they won't be as loyal. So that's one thing you really need to just focus on getting top-notch service and just making it, let it speak for itself. Don't use it as an advertising point. It will speak for itself through customer reviews and word of mouth. What is great customer service? What is great customer service? Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, what I like when I go to a business is a fast response time. Uh, people who will solve the problem for me, they don't make me solve the problem for myself as the customer. And they go above and beyond that they compensate me for the hassle of a problem that I didn't create. So they re recognize that, you know, this was due to our whatever systems not being in place yet. So to show you our appreciation, we're going to give you a month for free of service, for example, or, hey, here's a dessert, you know, on the house, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I think is great customer service translates to any industry. I, uh, you know, I think about my first entry into the industry, uh, you know, a lesson that I learned very early on was I, my, the head of the company at the time said, if you have a customer who's with you for years and years and everything goes great, they have no real reason to be loyal to you. They might be friendly with you, but that's about it. What you really want is at some point you want something to go wrong so they can see how you recover because that's how you, that's how you win loyalty. When they see how you bounce back, when they see how you fix a problem, when they see how you react to something going wrong, that's how yeah. you cement the relationship. Yeah, I can relate to that. I, I can see that. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a buyer. It could be any small thing like, oh, you know, the battery died on us during this freeze um, and our panel's down. Oh, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out right away. Some sort of service issue needs to be resolved at some point. They'll, yep. they're, and they're keeping an eye out for response time, how capable you are of solving that problem. I don't agree that it needs to be some sort of crisis or fire in order to say, wow, they... You know, they, they rallied the troops and were able to, against all odds, figure out this impossible. Well, ideally, ideally you don't have a lot of fires and crises. <laughs> but ideally. 
Yeah. yeah. But what are your what are your thoughts on competing on price? So the dealer who goes in, the company who goes in and says, We're gonna go out and, you know, we'll we'll match a price. Give us your give us the quote, we'll match it, we'll beat it. What do you feel about those types of companies? I think it's that internet business guru Alex Ramosi says uh you'll never stand out by being number two at anything. And if you're trying to compete by being the lowest price, you'll never be the lowest price. So you'll never be even the best at that. So you might as well be the most expensive because that's a lot easier. So instead of racing to the bottom, race to the top and then quickly come up with ways to justify why you're the premium uh, priced product in your market. You have to be able to back it up. Um, and that's your job as the owner of your company to figure out ways to back it up, position yourself as the thought leader, the authority at the specific thing that you do. Again, if you've identified that specific thing that you do that nobody else in your market does, you don't have to be the best at all the things. You have to be the authority of that one thing. And that's your way of justifying your costs. But you I like that. to raise your prices. I like that. It's not about... You know, you're not, you think about some of the models where they go in and say, you know, X amount of dollars and we'll do this. Instead, you go the other way where you establish the relationship, you establish your credibility as an expert, you, mm -hmm. you win the customer's business by showing value in that relationship. Yeah. And then you talk about cost. And at that point, you can always right. figure out the dollars and cents. If you're expensive, I mean, you're never going to win the race to the bottom. That's just, that's just the reality. You're never going to no. And you can't build a business that way. No way. And once you've positioned yourself as the expert of that one thing or those two things, then it becomes a choice between you or nothing. You don't have to justify your price and not everybody's going to be able to pay your price. And so you don't need to be malleable. You shouldn't be, you know, wavering, say, well, we need this money. So we're going to give in this one time to this one guy who says, you know, he's in a pinch. Unfortunately, you know, that's just... Uh, an unhealthy cycle that you'll get trapped in. You need to be able to hold out for the customers and the prices, the projects mm -hmm. that you need to operate your business. And you'll stay just, once you get them, you'll stay just as busy as if you'd been doing the cheap stuff. So let me ask you, I guess on the same note, what's a strategy you've seen that absolutely doesn't work? A uh, strategy... What have you seen? What have you seen the small business owner try to stand out that you think is just a terrible idea? You know, what do you see when you hear about you know ABC Alarm Company is going out and saying, "Here's here's our new you know we're going to pivot yeah. and do this." What do you hear and you roll your eyes and say, "You know, in a month I'll be you know we'll talk again because this was a terrible idea." I don't. I think uh, maybe not one specific campaign, but a lot of times. Alarm integrators, business owners who get into ownership come from a technic, technical background, like an installer. They were an installer. That's more their upbringing rather than sales. I'm not saying all of them, but it seems in, in our industry, a lot of them tend to be that way. And chances are they've never purchased, they've installed a thousand mm -hmm. alarm systems, but have they actually ever shelled out the money to buy a high-end commercial system? And so a lot of times, uh, smaller dealers will price their products and services at a rate that they would feel comfortable paying. And so they base their customer's wallet off of their own wallet, 
which is a recipe for a disaster. You'll just be trapped in, in, in you know, a cycle of death where you're constantly lowering your rates or when you go to price something, you're like, well, I think that's too expensive. Whereas you just don't know until you, you know, you try. And so instead of, you know, shooting from the hip and saying, I think this is what I would be willing to pay, you know, it's it's kind of a money mindset that you really have to break out of uh, when you're a young dealer or, or uh, you know, a new dealer that your customer's wallet should not be the same as your wallet. You know, you should be aiming for a certain profit margin that probably is uncomfortable for you to pay, you know, unless you're, you know, you have the kinds of funds to pay that type of, you know, premium. And once you can get out of that, that mindset, uh, which is very hard to do, but necessary, then you get more confident and comfortable charging rates, the kind of rates that give you the runway that you need to operate your business at a profit and to begin to grow your company by hiring people and having the time you need to focus on higher profit margin yielding projects as opposed to just living from job to job, hand to mouth. Okay, I just need to get this project out of the way so I can go hunt the next one that so I can get it out of the way and hunt the next one and get it out of the way and hunt the next one. I think you I think you have a pretty good I'll say it's a pretty good analysis of the industry, which is that most of these companies start with someone who was boots on the ground. You know, they were elbow deep in the technology. They know how it works. They know how to install it. A lot of these guys know the hardware better than the manufacturers. And they say, I, you know, I don't want to work for anyone else. I can do this myself. And they know, they know the hardware better than anybody, but they right. may not necessarily be able to relate to the customer. So like you said, they think about right. themselves and these aren't necessarily set, but you know, they have to learn the sales. I think it's rare that you get a salesperson who says, I'll figure out the technology later. Let me just hire people that know the hardware. I think that's a pretty rare okay. occurrence. And right. I think you're right. You end up in these situations mm -hmm. where they're taking jobs that may not be profitable just because they're trying right. to get a foothold in the market. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So study, you know, if you're not comfortable with the finance end of business, you're going to need to learn it at some point. Otherwise, you're always just going to be, mm -hmm. you know, in the same, you're going to plateau pretty fast. So- you're, you may laugh. What, what, how do you define a trunk slammer? <laughs> you know, and is it it's kind of like it, it is the derogatory term of our industry, but hey, it is what it is. You know, a lot of people use it. Is it a bad and, thing? Uh, you know, I think everybody's trying to feed their family, you know. To, I've been called as trunk slammer when I was starting out. It was like, oh, you got a trunk slammer business. Yeah. And those guys are just trying to put food on the table. But if that's kind of uh, where you want to stay, you know, you don't really have at some, at, for some reason, you don't have the means to actually develop into an actual business. A trunk slammer is just a one man band or one woman band that uh, doesn't know how to distinguish themselves and position themselves as a, as a unique value provider, and therefore they can't charge the rates that they need to charge to grow an actual business, which means hiring people. And they're probably not comfortable managing other people either. They're more comfortable managing themselves. 
which probably means they, you know, they really don't want to be on a schedule. Uh, they want to be able to work when they want, take time off when they want. And because they have never delegated in the past or are not good at it, they can't achieve the level of of business ownership that's required to be able to have a fixed schedule and operating hours that are consistent. So I guess, you know, all of those things would just be uh, combined to define a Trump's mm-hmm. glamour. And it's a job. It's not a business. It's just a job. You work, you're, you're an employee of your, of your business, but it's not a sellable business. Do you think but if that's what you want, that's, you know, that's some people are fine doing that. So knowing that a lot of new businesses come from okay. people, men and women who have worked in the industry who just say, I want to do, you know, I want to be my own boss. Now I'm going to go off on my own. They typically yeah. have a history somewhere. They know something right. already. It's rare that you get someone yeah. who just walks in off the street and says, you know, I own the dry cleaners. Now I think I'm going to go into this, the alarm industry. So do you think in that situation, does it make sense to go with the more, you know, is there such a thing as like an entry level brand, something that's easy to learn to get your feet wet? Or does it make sense to say, look, I like, you know, a higher end brand. Like I'm going to just jump right into DMP or a Vigilon or, you know, go down, you know, the path of something a little more complicated. Or do you try and keep things simple and go with a, some, any, something you can get a distribution that's a little more user friendly? Yeah, usually a lot of those manufacturers require a certain, you know, amount of spend or a certain amount of prop, the higher end enterprise companies. They require a certain amount of uh, annual spend, order quantity, years in business, uh, you know, proof of your ability to install certain amount of technicians on staff. So you can't really, or they limit the amount of dealers in their area. So even if you're a technician who's comfortable installing those products because you worked with Port, an integrator that was the right size, if you leap off on your own, chances are you're not going to have access to those same products to start off with. Uh, I think it's a great idea to start with a smaller brand that's trying to make a name for themselves just like you are because they are going to, you're going to have more attention from them. Uh, they're probably going to give you leads because they're anxious to get their product out there on the market. They want more hands on it. They want people who are experienced technicians to install their products and do it right. So that helps build their brand and helps build the recognition for them. So I think it's a great idea to do that. You know, it's, I always say play for the team that wants you, you know, there's a lot of times where you want to play for a team but they're just you know they got five point guards and you're you know the sixth best point guard you're never you're going to be on the bench whereas you can go to the team that's all big man and they need a you know a floor floor general and all of a sudden you're the starter so make sure that you find the team that wants you that, that wants you to play for them and if that's a a newcomer to the to the industry awesome so with that in mind if you're first starting out and you're, you know, you're in a position where you need every dollar, you know, I mean, I don't know if there's any business that the dollars don't matter, but if you're in a position where you really have to grind and, and, you know, if you don't make a sale that day, you don't, you don't keep the lights on. How do you feel about working with lines where you don't actually own the customer, you know, someone like, a, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we should name any names, but there are quite a few brands out there where you're essentially just licensing you're going out you're there you're their installing arm you're providing the labor but 
you know, they actually own someone like a Butterfly yeah. MX or Ricotta, where they actually they yeah. own the customer, and all you're doing is providing labor. Is it a good and idea? You're comfortable idea? with that. You know, everybody's business is their own business. If if they're sending you Boku leads, you know, and it's you're making a killing off of it, great. But I always say, if you don't own the contract, you don't own a business. Uh, again, you just don't. If you're just from one project to the next, you've got a job. You don't have. Let me rephrase that. You don't have a sellable business. So you might be operating. You might be hiring, employing people. But at the end of the day, once those sales dries up, dry up, the doors close. If you have a recurring contract that renews and it keeps coming in year after year and it's predictable and you can show a bank, we have promise notes for this length of time, you can point to a dollar amount of the worth of your business. And so when you're when you're just dealing, you know, for a, a vendor that's using you as the integrator, just recognize that all you are is just, uh, you know, a, a, a glorified handyman, you know, who can program and permission and install correctly is licensed, but you're, you're not, you not owning that contract means you can't transfer it as an asset that you own. Yeah. And it's not necessarily, not everyone's looking to build a business to, to sell, but it's someday you want to retire. Correct. There's, you know, even if you're not selling it, there's got to be some sort of succession plan when you retire you're handing it off to a general manager or a, a, a child or somebody in the family or a friend. You know, the sell doesn't mean, you know, just find a strange out there who wants to buy your assets, might be transferring the business to a new leadership and you're getting some sort of stipend. And unless you have, you know, solid management and a business model in a place where it understands you're just taking new jobs and always hunting the next job, then you need to start keeping those contracts somehow. So I would recommend from my own personal professional opinion to be the one that owns that contract. What about, you know, there are quite a few smaller companies out there that act as, I don't know if franchise is the right word, but essentially an authorized reseller where you get, mm -hmm. you know, these, uh, these smaller alarm companies that operate as, you know, uh, they might be ADT of Topeka, Kansas mm -hmm. or what have you. What are your thoughts on being a reseller versus just being, you know, it's, it's for one thing, you get that brand recognition that you go out to the market, everybody already knows who you are, sure. but does it right. make it harder for you to establish yourself? It absolutely does because you're always competing against uh, the parent company for brand recognition. It's really hard to differentiate yourself because when they think of your product, you could leave a flyer at their door and they might not be ready to buy then. And a year down the road, they're like, oh yeah, let's buy that. But they can't find your flyer, but they remember the name of the parent company. And the parent company knows that. So they get a lot of business that way. And you never touch any, any you know, a single dime of that. It's almost like being an affiliate rather than your own business. Yeah, it's, it's like not a, a business. Almost, Again, almost an employee. Correct. It's, it's, it's the same analogy, job versus business. And... I know a lot of people have done that and they've become wealthy off of it. But once, you know, once the time comes for them to wrap, wrap up shop, they don't have a sellable business because it was just a job the whole time. They're just really good at their job. They're a professional more than a business owner. Can you give an example of a smaller company that's done, 
you know, a really good job of distinguishing themselves against the big, against the big guys out there. Yeah, Dave Schwartz. <laughs> well, that's a given. Dave Schwartz. He's coming at the, you know, stabbing the Achilles heel of the McKinsey's of the world. <laughs> no, you know, um, everybody will point to SSNSI, SSNSI, Jake Ball. That's a good one. Always like that's a good one. Why taking on all the distributors with, and they're, again, he's found one thing. He, he does a lot of things amazing. Him and his crew do a lot of things that are amazing. But if I told you what's the one thing that they do that nobody else does, what would it be? When people ask me about SSNSI, what I tell them is, you know, they're not, you can't, some of these distributors that have offices, every branches everywhere, you can't compete with that convenience of knowing if I need an additional part or I have a problem, I can just drive down the road and, and buy it off the shelf. But what you get differently with Jake and his team is they may not pick up every ring. They, they may not pick up on the first ring every time, but his people really know what they're doing. He hires okay. people that know, know their know their customers they know their job they know the market and when you talk to his team you're talking to someone that is an expert and you don't get that with a lot of the larger players that's awesome to hear you say i would not have said that (laughs) not that i don't believe that (laughs) i just would not have said that (laughs) yeah no they're great don't get me wrong but i know a lot of the larger players that i could say the exact same thing about what you just said so that's not what I was thinking. And maybe it isn't that obvious. I think it is obvious. I was going to say the thing that I think they're doing better than anybody else that nobody else that I know is really doing is the whole blessed and branded thing. That's, yes. Where he's going to put your logo on pretty much anything you want him to uh, because he understands what, what that means for your brand recognition. And that right there to me is priceless. And that right there is probably... I'll say he's not the only one that does it, but I think he's one of the only ones that understands how valuable it is. Right. Mm -hmm. I think he, there are other companies that will do that for you, but he's the one that recognizes that this is not just a nice to have. It's how you, it's how you build customer loyalty and build your business, build stickier relationships. He gets it. He understands why it matters. And he markets the hell out of it. Like I say. He markets the hell out of it, and you're not seeing any of that coming from the other people who are doing it because I don't know that other people that are doing it, you yep. do, but I didn't know that. So there you go. That's my example. <laughs> what would you say, looking at the last couple of years, what do you think have been the biggest changes in the industry over the last five, 10 years? Uh, cameras instead of alarm panels. Definitely cameras. People are replacing uh, alarm you know, monitored alarm systems with cameras, everybody from the DIY to the business. Um, and I think moving forward over the next decade, that's probably going to continue to be the biggest thing. Uh, security systems are cameras from now on, as opposed to mm-hmm. a panel on the wall, you know, something that people want to touch on the wall. It's like, why do you need some hardware on the wall? You can just do it from your phone or your laptop. Um, and then... What do you yeah, see in what do you see as like the biggest changes coming? Well, one other thing I was going to say about changes that I've seen in the last five years is to talking about authorized dealers of these programs. A lot of those that I knew, you know, in the early days of the thousands, 
who are just making killings are now all solar dealers, which just goes to show their business model is not one of owning a contract. It's all about making the next sale. And as those DIY products that I mentioned, like the ring doorbell cameras came to prominence over this last decade, they started cutting out on their business and it got harder to go door to door. These residential companies, because people are like, well, why am I going to pay, you know, 50 bucks a month for this security system when I can just buy a ring doorbell camera for 300 bucks. And then once ring was in the doorstep, you know, they started introducing their own subscription models. And so a lot of those uh, old authorized security dealers said, well, we don't have any business here. So the next best, you know, the next gold mine is solar. And so that's where they all are now. I think uh, using ring as the example, I would say for any company that's starting out or maybe smaller and still trying to scale, I think okay. the companies that decide to, you know, be the author, you know, the local pro, the installing arm of some of these companies like Nest and Ring, right. I think it's a dangerous ground because you put yourself in a yeah. situation where you're basically competing against, you're competing for customers that don't want you. Right. You know, you can't compete right. against a DIY market. There's nothing to compete against. Again, it's like you're never going to be the best if you're the second at something. You know, you're never going to be the cheapest because those huge DIY companies are always going to be cheaper than you, no matter what. And that's a big mistake. So if you're going in that direction, you know, it's a different kind of customer, though. I think trying to convince someone who's interested in DIY to let you work in their home or their business is a waste of your time. Oh, absolutely. If you're not, do you do ring cameras? You know, it's like, no, we don't do ring cameras. It's more, you know, commercial grade security system that you're not going to get off the shelf. It's a lot more involved than that because it is. It involves design, programming, follow up, maintenance, monitoring, everything. You know, it's not a lick and stick thing. And to answer your question, what do I see trending for the future in our industry besides more cameras and cameras, you know? completely re replacing arm alarm panels or not completely, but for the most part is in tandem with, uh, the, the DI, these authorized dealers being, uh, moving on to another industry like solar, because the DIY basically took the rug out from under them is in a similar ground, the same thing happening to commercial integrators, but for different reasons, there won't be less. There will be less com commercial security integrators, not because the business isn't there, but because the labor isn't there. Uh, as the labor market continues to shrink and shrink and shrink as more baby boomers leave the market, uh, a lot of these manufacturing companies are going to continue to just buy security integrators and keep them in-house to install their products. So you'll start to see less, you'll start to see more conglomerate style integrators. The bigger players will get even bigger. And a lot of these, you know, small, it'll, you know, it'll be trunk slammers and these medium companies that have had struggled to identify their unique offering. Better hope, you know, they have start getting contracts that they're sellable. So they are acquired or figure out what their unique offering is in the market in order to stay afloat. Uh, to be able to compete with the low costs of these large integration firms. Again, you have to become premium or die. You know, make yourself boutique, premium or die. That's really all it's going to be until 2040. 
Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I think we're just about out of time. So I want to thank you again, Scott, for joining us today. Uh, Scott, you want to- Up here in my dark layer. You can find me when I'm not up here in my dark tower in my dark dungeon. Sorry, it's a camera thing. We weren't able to figure it out. But yeah, securitysales.substack.com. Yeah, um, sign up for Scott's LinkedIn. newsletter. Sign up, for yeah. his, sign up for his newsletter. Uh, you can see, follow him on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for joining us today. And we'll talk soon. Yeah. Likewise, my good friend. I'll see ya. All right, see ya. Bye.